Okay, so let's jump into this. How do I know the Bible is true? You guys buckled in, strapped in, ready to go? All right. How do I know the Bible is true? We're gonna t- there's three tests that they, you take any ancient document through. Okay, this is not just like what Christians do. This is how everybody d- determines um, whether something is legitimately what it was supposed to be or um, that, it's, uh, that it's, it was really that document from that time. Okay, there's three tests. And the first one is the bibliographic test. Okay, the bibliographic test. The question is, is, the, is, is it reliable as a writing in this case, from like 2,000 years ago or more, okay, how do we know it's accurate to its original source? This kind of answers that question of how do we know it's not changed so many times? So can we, how, do, how can we compare this um, to that? Okay, and the, the truth is this, the transcribers that would transcribe the Bible, okay, that would copy it, the copyists, that would copy this over and over again, okay, this was a sacred thing for them. This was something that they took very seriously. They were very meticulous about it. And they had these systems and they would follow these systems. And if, you know, and we were talking about a scroll at the time, okay? One big, long piece of paper, right? And they would write it. And if there was one thing wrong, they'd throw that away. They'd destroy it and they'd start all over again, okay? And because of that, it actually has proved to be incredibly accurate over the years. Um, but one of the ways we can see this and how exact they were is through something called the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? The Dead Sea Scrolls. Right? How many have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Anybody know what they are? Nope, right? Most of us are like, yeah, the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, right? You don't really know, but this is why they were so significant, okay? The Dead Sea Scrolls were written about 100 years before Jesus, okay? Just to give you a time frame. About 100 years before Jesus. They, they have in them copies of all the Old Testament books except the book of Esther. So all the other ones, all right? Um, And when they were found in 1947, when they found these scrolls, the earliest copies we had before they found the Dead Sea Scrolls were from 900 years after Jesus. Those are the oldest Old Testament um, copies or manuscripts that they had. And so we're talking about a thousand year gap. It's a long time, right? And so they found documents from a thousand years earlier, okay, is what they dated back to. And so then you're able to take this gap of a thousand years and compare it. How does that compare, you know, to a thousand years before? If, if, if it's true that when they were copied and they kept messing it up over a thousand years, you'd have a, some big differences. So they were able to compare these two. You know how much it changed? 5%. 5% over a thousand years. And they found um, almost all of those, and actually maybe all of them, to be grammatical or spelling errors, just changes, differences. That's it. Content was all the same, okay? That's it. But what about the New Testament, right? That's where Jesus is talked about, and he's the polarizing figure that people try to prove it doesn't exist, right? He's that guy. And so let's look at, at this. And another th- way that you kind of, this is the true bibliographic test, okay? You took, after, um, you, uh, you look at the time something was written compared to the earliest manuscript that was discovered, okay? So one of the things is you're kind of saying, okay, has it been consistent, all right? But you're looking at what's the oldest copy of something you have, okay? And what's the gap between that and the time it was originally written, right? Because you want it to be as close to that as possible. Like if I wrote something today, it'd be great if you could compare it to a copy from today, right? Because that would be best. Obviously with ancient manuscripts, you're never gonna get that close. But um, how, what about the New Testament in that? So let's look at some other, some other ancient manuscripts that are things that are just commonly accepted as very much legitimate, okay? Aristotle, anybody heard of Aristotle? 
okay, philosopher, wrote his poetics around 343 BC, and yet the earliest copies we have dated are AD 1100, okay, a gap of almost 1400 years, and there's only five manuscripts that exist, okay? Caesar composed his history of the Gaelic Wars between 58 and 50 BC, and its manuscript authority rests on only nine or 10 copies, dating 1,000 years after his death, okay, which he died in 44 BC, okay? So you got 1,000 years and only nine or 10 manuscripts, okay? So the, that's not very many. And most of you probably learned some of that stuff in school, and it was like, this is this document, this is what he wrote, right? And those are, that's very common. There are many other writings of antiquity with similar stats, if you will, for their manuscript authority. It's commonly between several hundred years and over a thousand years of a gap and somewhere between a handful of a dozen manuscripts. And the more manuscripts, the better, right? Because again, you can compare more to see. You're not just comparing two, two documents. But what about the New Testament? The New Testament books were originally written somewhere between 50 AD and 90s AD, okay? Uh, most of them being written before 70 AD with the oldest manuscripts being from 130 AD to 200 AD, and a total of over 5,600 Greek manuscripts exist. And that, if I'm not mistaken, is of like full manuscripts. If you start getting into partial ones, I've heard a number of over 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. It's not even close. And, And that's why... Um, Bruce Metzger, who was a college professor emeritus of New Testament language and literature of Princeton Theological Seminary and a Bible translator, he once said this, the quantity of New Testament material is almost embarrassing in comparison to other works of antiquity as there is no issue with where it was from originally compared to anything else. And you know why scripture has been preserved so well over all these years? Matthew 24, 35 says this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. And here's the thing, I understand that that's talking about God's word in essence, and it'll be forever, right? But not necessarily the written word, but the, the principle remains here. God protects his word. Okay. There's nothing that's going to outdo it. There's nothing that's going to, to put it down as false. Um, it, it doesn't matter. It will remain forever. It's eternal. Okay. It's valuable and it's sacred. And so it'll, it'll, it's, it's here to stay guys. And it's going to stay accurate. All right. Second one is this. It's the external evidence test. Okay. Second test you take an ancient manuscript through is, is the external evidence test. This would mean, um, is it accurate to its time period? Okay, the Bible, you'll often hear us at Pathway talk about, this is history, right? We'll say, it's not just stories made up, this is history, there's real things talked about. And so they talk about cities, places, uh, time periods, who was alive, everything. So you look at those and does that compare to those things correctly? And you can also look at other writings and say, okay, did they mention these things as well and see if those things existed. So this would be everything externally, does it line up with history as a whole? Okay, um, also to hi- historical discoveries, and we'll talk about that here in a second. And so I'll just, I'm just gonna say with all this stuff, um, we could be here for days to talk about every example. I'm just gonna give you some really big examples of these things, and there's just no, there's many more of these. So first, let's look at the book of Acts, okay? The book of Acts was written by Luke, okay? He was a doctor, he's also a, a, an historian, a historian, and he wrote the book of Acts. 
And he talks about 54 cities, 39 different countries and nine different islands, complete historical accuracy. All of them existed, all of them existed during that time, completely historically accurate. And you see that kind of stuff over and over again, just con- tons of different places mentioned and other things line that up. Yes, that was the time period. Yes, other, somebody else wrote about that. But another way that we discover those things is through archeology. span Okay, when something is, of course, archaeology is not just digging up dinosaur bones, all right? That's paleontology. It is a kind of archaeology. Okay, when there's discoveries made, right? Archaeological discoveries made, and does that line up with the history written? Okay, this kind of stuff happens all the time. And one of the greatest examples of this is a, is a, um, is a empire called the Hittites. Does anybody remember who the Hittites are in the Old Testament? Okay, they got annihilated, I'll give you that, okay, <laughs> by the Israelites, okay, but the Hittites, um, and there's this whole entire empire, Hittites, called, talked about in the Bible, right? There's some of those that you, you, you remember hearing often over and over again. Hittites is one of them. Well, the, the problem was, this was the only place it was written about. And so there was no other, and so what people said for years and years, they said, they said well, the, they just made it up to make, you know, Israel look better or whatever. They just made all this up. And so nobody really believed in it until the early 1900s, when a professor by the name of Hugo Winkler, not Henry Winkler, okay? Not the Fonz, all right? Hey. All right, so he discovered at Bozkali 10,000 tablets of the capital of the Hittites. Now everybody believes in the Hittites, all right? And over and over again, this happens, okay? It happens where people will discover things and say, man, that lines up with what it says in the word of God. Psalm 33, four says, for the word of the Lord is right and true. Guys, and history is a witness to that fact. That's why archeologist Joseph Free wrote, he said, archeology span has confirmed countless passages which have been rejected by critics as unhistorical or contradictory to known facts because they keep unearthing more and more and more and it just all points to this all being true. And Clark H. Pinnock, who is a professor emeritus of systematic theology at McMaster Divinity College, stated, there exists no document from the ancient world witnessed by so excellent a set of textual and historical testimonies and offering so superb an array of historical data on which an intelligent decision may be made. An honest person cannot dismiss a source of this kind. Skepticism regarding the historical credentials of Christianity is based on an irrational bias. Guys, that what you need to understand about that is there is so much history that points to it being true. He's saying any rational person can see that. If somebody doesn't see that, it's not a head issue, it's a heart issue. They have an irrational bias. And guys, it'll happen all the time. We were all there at some point with God, having that irrational bias. And so we've gotta understand that that's what's gonna cause those statements, even tr- people trying to bring out facts or things, there's, there is, it's almost, like I said, it's almost embarrassing, as somebody said earlier, in comparison to other things. And so it's a hard issue. It's not a head issue. And we've got to understand that. And know, be, be solid and know in what you believe is his, history has held this up over and over again. And if somebody says otherwise, it's for another reason, okay? Last thing is this, the internal evidence test. Last test is the internal evidence test. The internal evidence test. Okay. So here the question would be, okay, within the Bible, 
Is it consistent? Because obviously if you saw things that constantly went against each other and the way it was written or different things like that, that it would not hold up against itself. Like if it said this one thing and then something else that completely contradicted that, then it wouldn't make any sense and it'd be something that, that would make people question it. Kind of like when I talked about the beginning, the whole idea of the relative truth thing, the subjective truth, and some of those statements not lining up against each other, right? Like when they say that, that just philosophically doesn't even make sense because of what they're stating, all those kind of things. If there was a lot of that kind of stuff, it's basically stuff inside the Bible. Consistencies you see, does that point to it being legitimate or being true? Okay, and here's the crazy part. The Bible tells one unified message, okay? It tells one story throughout the whole thing. And some of you might be thinking, well, what, it's a book that makes sense. Most do, right? But the difference is the Bible is actually one book made up of 66 different books, okay? And here's what's, what's crazy about this. It was written by over 40 different authors over a period of 1,600 years, 15 or 1,600 years, in over a dozen countries on three different continents in at least three different languages by people from all walks of life, farmers and kings, soldiers and shepherds, princes, priests, historians, fishermen, tax collectors, businessmen, even a doctor. How do they read his handwriting, right? All these different people, yet it, it makes one book with one unified story without contradiction. That's amazing. There's no other book in history that's done that. And if it weren't true, it wouldn't make any sense. Okay, and I want you to understand, we're talking about 1,500 years or more. Some of these people had no clue who the other one was. I and mean, we're talking hundreds of years between stuff was written. And it, and, and it all points to something specific, one specific story. Let me, let me give you one really great example of this is when we look at prophecies in the Bible, okay? And so this is where it gets in beyond what would be the internal evidence test and it becomes miraculous, okay? As you look at the um, different, they, they were written hundreds of years before this ever came to happen, right? And some of the biggest ones are the messianic prophecies, okay? Messianic meaning the Messiah, the, the, the anointed one of God foretold to come to set up his kingdom, which ended up being Jesus. And he fulfilled all those prophecies, right? Okay. But there was, there was a guy who did a study, okay? Um, and he, uh, back in the 1950s, and he decided to take some messianic prophecies, okay? And he decided to calculate the mathematical probability that they could have all been fulfilled. And when I say all, they studied eight of them, okay? They decided to take eight of them because the 50 prophecies that there are with over 300 different references Throughout, throughout the Bible would have been just too overwhelming. They just decided, no, we can't do that. We'll take eight of them. We'll take eight of them and we're gonna calculate the probability by taking um, the likelihood that someone wrote it at the time that they did and, and then saying from that time to the present day, the likelihood that somebody would fulfill that prophecy, okay? And so, and they calculated these individually and then they would multiply the next by the next by the next, okay? And so they took, um, this is an example. They took um, the, the, there's a prophecy that says that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, okay? And so they took the population of Bethlehem, okay? And, and they, they, they calculated from that to the present day, what was the likelihood that somebody would have been born in Bethlehem 
They took, sorry, they took the population of the world at the time and the population of Bethlehem. I forgot to mention that, okay? And they, they calculated what would be the likelihood that that person compared to the entire world would have been born in Bethlehem. What's the mathematical probability? And it was one in 300,000, okay? And I want you to understand, they took these two and they made them really conservative because like that is very conservative actually because they didn't take into consideration the fact that Jesus didn't live in Bethlehem. That was assuming he lived in it. He didn't live in Bethlehem. They were from Nazareth, but because of a census, they had to go to Bethlehem where Joseph's line was from. And so that's why they happened to be there at the same time, okay? So that would have made the number just astronomical, but they were going conservative because they didn't want to, um, they didn't want to mess it up, okay? And so they did that and they took that and they would multiply it by the next and by the next and the next, okay? So just eight, just the eight prophecies they looked at, okay? Not the other, the, uh, the total 50, okay? Not the other 42, just eight, okay? And they calculated that the probability of one man um, being able to fulfill all of those randomly, okay, would have been one in 10 to the 17th power, okay? Put that number up on the screen, okay? That's, that's one to 10 to the 17th power. That's one quadrillion. That's more than the U.S. debt. That's pretty serious. By a lot, by a whole lot. That's saying something, all right? That's saying something. Let that number sink in, okay? And here's the deal. We're really bad with big numbers. We just are. That's why we look at the debt. We're like, oh, yeah, that's not bad. The U.S. debt, right? They're like, yeah, it's horrible. It's the worst ever. But, you know, so numbers like this, it's like, wow, that's crazy. But here, he, um, he offered a, a visual, for, uh, for you to understand this. And he wrote this out to help you understand. I think we have that. Do you have that on there? You put that up? Okay, Peter Stoner was the guy's name, by the way. Okay, he says, if you mark one of 10 tickets, place all of them in a hat and thoroughly stir them, and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chances of getting the right ticket are one in 10, right? Okay, so suppose we take, it's supposed to say 10 to the 17th power, okay? 10 to 17th power, silver dollars, and lay them on the face of Texas, the state, not on a map, like the actual state, okay? They will cover all of the state two feet deep, okay? Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly, if you could ever do that, okay? All over the state, all right? And blindfold the man, tell him he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say it's the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? just the same chance the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time, providing they wrote using their own wisdom. But they didn't. See, that's what's so important to understand. That number is astronomical. I mean, it's honestly unfathomable. I mean, that's, even with that visual, it's ridiculous. And that's just those eight, there was... 50 with over 300 different references, all these details, it would be a number that, I mean, we literally couldn't comprehend if they wrote with their own wisdom, but they didn't. Okay, because the Bible actually has one author, it has one author, and that's God. And it says in Second uh, Peter, you put that verse up, it says, for prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets... Um, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's honestly the only explanation of why that could happen. 
hundreds of years before, hundreds of years apart from each other as they wrote these things. And yet they all came true in one person. The only way that happens is the Holy Spirit made it happen. If God exists, and the crazy thing about this is not only does this point to the Bible being true, it points to the very existence of God himself. When you start to dive into even if the Bible is true. And here's the thing. Here's the last thing we need to really understand. Beyond is the Bible true, okay? Is understand that the Bible is the inspired word of God. The Bible is the inspired word of God. This is not just a book. It is not just words on a page. This is not just a historical document. It is the inspired word of God. Okay, Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You don't read the Bible. The Bible reads you. It's alive. It's different than any other book. The, the Bible isn't just read, it speaks to you. Okay, and, that, and that's what not only brings this to not just, not just be, oh, it's true, it's true to what's original source, it's, it's a true document, but it is truth. This is truth. And this is where we draw our truth from, okay? Look, in, in John chapter one, it's one through five, says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made. That um, what has been made in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And now if we jump down to verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and it made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Wait a minute. Verse 14 is talking about Jesus. It says, is, became flesh and made dwelling among us, and he's referred to as the Word. Okay? And that's why we gotta start seeing the Bible. And we're bigger than knowing, yes, it's true. Does it pass all the tests? Absolutely. Okay? But beyond that, it is truth. It is God-breathed is what the Bible says. It is alive. And it's something that we not only go to to get some good facts and history and those things, but we go to it to, to receive life. And the Bible is truth. It's not just true. You remember those verses I talked about in the beginning, John chapter eight says, so Jesus said to the Jews who believe in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It says, if you abide in my word, that means if you dwell in the word, if you stand firm, if you accept without objection by faith, the word of God, then you will experience truth. Not just know it's true. You will be able to experience what truth is. Remember how I said it, the Bible tells one unified story? Well, that story is about the word. It's about Jesus because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. John fourteen six. he said, I am the truth. And the thing is, when we read the Bible, when we go to the Bible, we're not only reading a true document, 
Yes, it, it's held up through history. We can learn some great things about history. Um, not only is it accurate to its original source, not only is it consistent and even miraculous in its consistency, but we get to experience truth. We get to experience Jesus. Which brings me to the last thing, is I want you to understand how you, one of the things you can, why you can know the Bible is true. Okay, that no other religious document can boast is this, that you can know the author personally. You can know the author personally. I mean, if you think about some little small writing, you know somebody wrote a book, you know somebody you like, yeah, when you read that, you know that was them. You know them and it makes sense, right? But with historical documents, we can't do that, right? And other religious writings. I mean, the, the, the writings of, of Hindu were just all of Buddhist sermons compiled together, okay? The, the Quran was writings of one man that were compiled together after his death, okay? They don't even have the miraculous, you know, just 50, 40 different authors over 1,500 years thing, okay? But all those people, they're dead, okay? But for us, yeah, even though there's different people that wrote it down, there's one author. And the thing is, you can know him personally. And you can know, yeah, that makes sense with what I know about my God that I serve. And let me just let you know a secret. That's the point of the book. That's the moral of the story is that I can know, I can know this guy. And the reason it tells one story is so that I can know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I can know him personally. And for some of us, that means, you know what? There's one thing that no fact could ever take this away from me as being true because no one can take away my personal relationship with God. And no one can help me under, when I have experienced God's love and salvation and grace. And when I see it written about and I say, yeah, that sounds like the author. They can't take that from you. If you have the facts, you'll still win, okay? But they can't take that from you. And if you're in this place today and you're like, you know what? I don't, I don't have that personal relationship. I want you to understand that this is here not as a bunch of rules, not as a bunch of facts like we talked about. Yes, there's truth in there. There's true statements in there. There's history in there, but it's not here as a bunch of those, but it's there so that you can discover the author. This is how God reveals himself to us. And when we abide in his word, we can not only see that it's true, we can know truth. And so if you're here today and you need to know truth, Jump into his word. Let's pray.